like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 7 today. And in starting a new chapter, we're kind of starting a little bit of a new series. I kind of want to give some more umbrellas, I guess, to different sections of the Gospel of John. So as we open up John 7 today, uh, we're going to be kind of looking at John 7 and 8 as kind of a collected unit, um, as we did 6 kind of by itself. 7 and 8 has an interesting, to say the least, kind of connection at the end of chapter 7, the beginning of chapter 8, if you know what I'm talking about, the um, issue of the woman caught in adultery and some manuscript issues that we'll deal with in a few weeks, Lord willing. Um, but for right now, it's good for us to be thinking about 7 and 8 together as kind of one big event. And um, under the heading of water and light, these are kind of the two big illustrations that Jesus uses in his teaching in these two chapters. Of course, water being the first one. And just for the sake of context and future direction, if you have John 7 open, we won't be reading verse 37 today. But that's where we kind of get this idea of Jesus' teaching of living water. In verse 37, he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Have we heard anything about water thus far in the Gospel of John? Does anybody remember from a while back? Thank you. Yeah, the Samaritan woman at the well, right? And Jesus kind of offers the same thing with her here now in John chapter 7. Well, water and light may not immediately seem to go together in, in our minds as we might think. However, these are the primary kind of teaching tools that Jesus is going to use in these two chapters. First, he says again this thing about living water. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And then forward in chapter 8, when we get to it, we'll see Jesus with another big I am statement. I am the what? Anybody want to guess? I am the light of the world, right? Yeah, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So we're kind of using those two things as the connection between the two chapters. But they also fit the setting of what's going on, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, that being the festival of booths. It's going on in chapter 7 and chapter 8. So before we do that, um, I'm going to read our passage this morning. It's a larger chunk. We're going to read verses 1 through 24. And our title this morning is Discovering True Teaching. And it may seem, at least it seemed to me a couple times this past week, that we're almost rehashing some of what we heard in John 6 last, like that, that ending point of the hard sayings of Jesus. That when he had this huge crowd before him because of the feeding of the 5,000, he ends that whole discourse by saying, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood or you have no part in me. And many of the, even of his disciples, not only the crowds who kind of said, I don't want anything to do with this guy, but many of the guys who had said, hey, I've been following Jesus for a little while, they changed their minds and went the other way. They left him. And then Peter has this great phrase, to whom shall we go? And Jesus says, do you also want to go away as well? Peter says, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Your words, your teachings, this saying is hard. And I don't think that those who stayed, stayed because they got it. They stayed because they believed. They stayed because they had no other choice. And so we move from hard teaching as the emph emphasis in chapter 6 to true teaching and discovering that true teaching. And, and we'll find, of course, that these two things are one and the same. Did I give you plenty of time to open to John 7? 
We're going to read verses 1 through 24. This is going to be the most important thing we do in our worship service today, is to, over these verses, hear the word of God. Please follow along with me. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feasts of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? There's much muttering about him going on the people, among the people. Well, some said he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keep the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may, be, may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a, whole, a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Would you take a moment, please, with me and meditate on the word, and then I'll open us up in prayer before we share some thoughts here. Father, your word says in Proverbs 12, 25, that anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Lord, would you, by your spirit, by the truth of your word, the truth of the teachings of Christ that we've just read, would you make our hearts glad this morning? Glad to know that we are in Christ, glad to know that he's been so freely available to us by grace alone. Glad to know that his mercy has covered all of our sins and done away with them, sent them as far as the east is from the west, because that is what he came to do. 
Lord, would you speak to our hearts in regards to the things that we do to prioritize our own glory or our own will over yours? May we leave here perhaps better equipped or more inclined to do your will over our own and to understand true teaching. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, the title this morning is Discovering True Teaching. And it's interesting today when we think about teaching that is true, right? We have had so many conversations in our culture about what truth really is and how it applies in all sorts of different areas of life. We've had that conversation when it comes to medical issues. Who's really telling the truth? Who has an agenda? Whose agenda distorts the truth and whose agenda lifts up the truth? We've talked about this in school settings and how even in some cases it seems that something as basic as history is being rewritten to form according to an agenda. It also seems in many ways that the new things have carried greater weight than the true things that we teach. Because something's new, it is more interesting. It pulls people in. People are curious about this. You can see this in the book of Acts, of course, with the Athenians. In Acts 17, 21, Luke tells us that the Athenians did nothing else but spend all their time in trying to discover some new thing. I mean, that was 2,000 years ago, and the world's still fascinated with what's new, whether that be an idea or a thing. I mean, you can't keep an iPhone for very long, can you, before the battery runs out and Apple is very ready to give you a new one. And by give you, I mean charge you a couple thousand dollars. But new is so much more fascinating to us than true. Because it's not the first question we go to. Is the thing new? Is it something exciting? Is it something I want? True versus new teaching is not a new battle, but has been going on even as we see in our chapter today. We want to make progress. We want the best, and true or new is what's at stake. Back to chapter 6, verses 48 through 71. This was two weeks ago now, so to refresh your memory on the matter of the bread of life, we were called from that passage to continue in the teaching of the bread of life. Even when it gets to a point where Jesus is saying something and we can't really receive it because we don't understand it. How many things in your mind right now can you list that you believe are true and yet you have no idea how they work? In 2022, it's hard for us to try to come up with a list like that because we want to know how everything works, right? At least the things we care about. And the things we don't care about, we don't put a whole lot of emphasis on learning. And yet what Christ calls us to in the context of his teaching, is not first understanding, but first faith. First simply believing, right? It was an interesting thing to think about a classroom in that regard, because I don't think that when I taught middle school, that my middle schoolers were coming in, sitting in their desks and thinking, Pastor Vian has some amazing truth for us today. Whatever it's going to be, I know it's just going to be great, because I trust him, Right? First of all, they were not there with any of that kind of attitude. It was mostly an attitude of, uh, can I be somewhere else? When is this going to be over? When are, when's lunch? You know, those kind of questions are going on. 
But the reason that my students sat in their desks for as long as they did was because they had to. They had no other choice. This was their situation of life. They were faced with a matter of learning something, whether they wanted to or not. And I'm not saying that every student I ever had stayed in their desk entirely or didn't run down the hallway and try to go somewhere else or even go home. But we are faced with some serious truth in God's word, are we not? It was a hard saying last week, and it's kind of not a whole lot easier this week. And what Christ is going to call us to is to discover the truth of it, not to figure out the truth of it necessarily. The gospel is not something that you figure out the way you dissect a bacteria. I don't know if you dissect bacteria. That's probably, I just made it very clear. I have no scientific knowledge whatsoever. When you look at a bacteria under a microscope, and you're analyzing, and you're studying, and you're trying to understand, and you're trying to prove hypotheses and all those kinds of things. This is not the same way we are to come to the Word of God. We go to a microscope to uh, confirm something perhaps that we thought or, or, or otherwise. Uh, this matter of coming to God's Word is a matter of us submitting first to the will of God and not to our own. Well, let's think about where Jesus is in the beginning of chapter 7. In verse 1, he says, after this, that is, after everything going on in chapter 6, Jesus went about in Galilee, and he tells us why. John doesn't leave all the important details out. He said he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Why would they be doing that? What kind of things was Jesus doing that would bring about an idea of murder in the hearts of his hearers? Well, he tells us later on when he did this miracle in chapter 5 of healing the paralyzed man at the pool that there was marveling going on. And, and, and certainly when it came to the feeding the 5,000, there was a lot of marveling going on and people didn't want to kill him. They wanted to make him king. They wanted to enforce their agenda, their will, and their glory onto Christ and see how he could fit. And naturally then by the end of that chapter, he didn't fit at all. When it comes to Jesus, we can't simply leave him on the sidelines and see if maybe later on in life or maybe later down the road we say, oh, here's a place where we could fit Jesus. I love what C.S. Lewis has said about how we need to deal with Jesus, and many of you know this, but he said that we either need to see Jesus as Lord, as he claimed to be, or a liar, that everything he said was completely false, and he's deceiving people, which was an idea in the passage we just read, or that he's a lunatic. It's just simply crazy. You can't just say, he's a nice guy, leave him alone. If you hear about Jesus, you can't leave him alone. You're going to do something in response to Jesus, even if that response feels like nothing. And that's what happens at the Feast of Booths. Now, what is the Feast of Booths? It was interesting, David mentioned the Feast of Booths this morning in Sunday school. I have a little bit of information for you because we're going to spend a few weeks in John chapter 7, so I don't want to give away all the exciting stuff first, but what you should know about the Feast of Booths was that it came after the Passover. The Passover was a celebration remembering when um, God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt, and he commanded all of his people to kill a lamb and put the blood on the doorposts of their home so that they could be safe from the destruction that was to come to the firstborn child in every house in Egypt. 
The Feast of Booths is what commemorates what happens after that, the time of the people of God in the wilderness. And, and it's a time, it's an interesting one. When we talk about booths, we're talking about tents. And so for this period of time, people of God would actually go to Jerusalem. Actually, if you were a male, you had to go, according to the law. There was no, sorry, I couldn't get off work this week. You had to go, according to the law. Um, assume bring your family as well. But they would build tents either in the side streets of the city or maybe outside of the city, wherever they could. They would build tents and that's where they would live for the entire feast. And it was interesting, some of the instructions they give. You need to leave the top of your tent lightly covered so that you can see the stars and the moon at nighttime, which will, of course, become very important when Jesus calls himself the light of the world. Every day there were water and light rituals that pointed to that wilderness wandering. We sang about it in that song, We Delight. You know, the pillar of fire by night that guided the people of Israel and the pillar of cloud by day that guided them just the same, re representing the presence of God with them. So both water and light, of course, had a lot to do with this Feast of Booths because in the wilderness they needed God to miraculously provide water and he did so through a rock. Now, when Jesus comes to this festival of booths, he's coming in a very unique setting because he is a Jewish man. So by the law, if Jesus exists in this world as a Jew and as one who is seeking to fulfill the law, he needs to go to it, just like everyone else. He doesn't get exempt. And in fact, his messiahship, that is his divine role as the son of God, means even more for this feast of booths than for any other one person. Because Jesus comes to the festival and actually fulfills the festival. Can you imagine? I mean, think about an event that you go to, maybe like a, a, a Christmas outing, you know, maybe you walk downtown and you, you go to the shops and you see the lights, you do like a Christmassy kind of festival, we don't really call it that, and it certainly doesn't carry the religious overtone in, in the city of Lima as they, as they do that necessarily, because they want it to be inviting and all that. But can you imagine walking around the streets of Lima around Christmas time and having somebody walk next to you and say, hey, you enjoying the festival? It's all about me. I'm why this festival happened. Oh, you organized it and planned it? No. I'm why they organized it and planned it. This festival points to me. What would you do with that kind of person? You would grab your kids and walk over this way very slowly, trying to get away. This man seems like a lunatic, or perhaps he's a liar. What if he was telling the truth? Well, Jesus comes, of course, to this festival of booths, but he doesn't come in the same way that everyone else did. Everyone else was able to come into Jerusalem excited. This was a, a joyful kind of festival. It was, it was all about thanksgiving and remembrance. God's been faithful, and let's celebrate that. And people looked forward to the festival of booths. Jesus, in contrast tells his brothers he's not going up to the festival, but later on he goes up privately once everybody has already been there. And when he gets there, he doesn't come simply to participate. He also doesn't come to just walk around and say, hey, I'm why this is happening. He actually comes to teach. And, and he comes with a, with a revelatory kind of teaching. Because he doesn't necessarily, again, he doesn't walk around saying, I'm what the Festival of Booths is all about. But when you see what he has to say in this section, 
That's absolutely what he's referring to. He's, he's coming and talking about water and talking about light in these two chapters. And, and you see in, in his teaching later on here, verse 7 of chapter 7, the world cannot hate you. He's talking to his brothers. He says, you, know, you guys can go up. You don't need to worry about opposition. People are seeking to kill me. And it, the world, those people who are seeking to kill me, hate me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. That's the teaching that's going on. I mean, that's his plan when he comes in. Why is it that people are opposing what he has to say? Well, in this happy festival of remembrance and thanksgiving, Jesus is teaching about sin and the need to repent. And he proves who he is by saying, hey, you can discover that the truth of my teachings are legitimate because of a couple things. Look down at your Bibles again with me, please. In verse 16, my teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or if I speak on my own authority. So you can know this, first of all, if your will is aligned with the will of God. If that's what you truly want, is to do the will of God in your life, then when I speak, Jesus says, you'll understand it to be true. He says in verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Jesus has already told us in chapter 6 that he did not come to do his own will, but the will of his Father. He didn't come to glorify himself, but to glorify his Father. We come back again to chapter 1, verse 14, which I've probably mentioned almost every John sermon. But John tells us that when Jesus came, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and that we have beheld his glory. And it's fascinating what he says next, because he's talking about the glory of Jesus. But then he says, we've seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father. There's a connection there. That Jesus is unique in not only all these other ways that we can talk about, but particularly here when he teaches, he is seeking to fulfill a will, but it's not his own. He is seeking to bring glory, but not to himself. And that is the criteria that he leaves for us to understand whether his teaching is true or not. And it's a great test for any kind of teaching. If somebody comes up and starts preaching and wants to talk about themselves and how great they think they are, I mean, right off the bat, you can tell, hey, this person's all about themselves. Even if they're talking about God, even if they're trying to tell me something good, the motives are totally off and motives matter, right? The motives are off because in contrast to what Jesus says, his priority being the will and glory of his Father, our priority is our own will and our own glory. And that's something we need to realize here, whether we are teaching, whether we are discipling or sharing the gospel, or just in everyday life regardless. Because when we prioritize our will and glory over God's will and glory, it distorts our ability to recognize truth. Does that make sense? When we are trying to prioritize our own will and glory, we cannot discern what truth really is because we're wrapped up in that. We see in this passage there's three groups that have this very same problem. First of all, you read it, you, you heard it in verses one through eight, the boastful brothers. It's fascinating because at first read, you kind of imagine that Jesus' brothers are saying this sarcastically. Like, hey, why don't you go on up? You know, John said that people were seeking to kill him. And the next thing we read is that his brothers are like, why don't you go on up and go make yourself known to the world? 
it's, it's kind of an interesting juxtaposition. Did they realize the pressure that was on Jesus? I don't think so. Usually when John speaks narrat- narrat- as the narrator here, he's doing so in a way that reveals something that the characters in the part of the story don't understand. And so while we might look at this, and perhaps rightly, we might say the brothers were sarcastic with him and dismissive and just saying, hey, you think you're so great? Go ahead and go do that. However, it seems more logical that these brothers were very pro-Jesus, but they were very against his teaching. That's a weird place to be. I mean, they liked the idea, just like everybody else in chapter 6, of, hey, why don't you just go ahead and feed us all the time so we never have to work again? Hey, why don't you become the king that we can put in place for our own will and our own glory? I mean, his brothers have the exact same problem. John says in verse 5, not even his brothers believed in him. And thus far, when John talks about people who don't believe in him, he's including people who seem very pro-Jesus, but are very against discovering the truth of his teaching. Now, that's an interesting thing to apply in the political scheme, isn't it? Can you imagine campaigning for somebody and saying, you really need to vote for this guy. He is a great guy. And then the press start raising hands. Tell us about such and such about his policy. His policies are terrible. But he's such a good guy. I don't agree with anything that he does or says. But you really ought to vote for him. How effective is that going to be? That's outrageous. It's, it's foolish, but that's where his brothers are, essentially. They really like the idea. Yeah, why don't you go make yourself known to the world? You want more disciples? You want a bigger group of people? Why don't you go out on that stage? The Festival of Booths is going on. Come with us. We'll parade you in. We'll say, here comes the Messiah. Everybody listen to him. Gather around, everyone. We'll get the crowd going. But when Jesus opens his mouth to teach, his his brothers, his disciples, everyone, it seems, want nothing to do with him. Now, it's super interesting because look at what his brothers say in um, verse 3. Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, do you get the emphasis on works? They're they're talking about the signs that Jesus has done. If you're doing these things like feeding 5,000 people, healing a paralyzed man, healing the official son, doing all these amazing things, why not stand on the biggest platform with the loudest microphone and make yourself known to the world? Everyone will follow you. Their idea is that bigger signs yield bigger results. And a bigger stage gives you a wider array of people to draw from. They see Jesus' signs and works as the true fulfillment of really their own will and glory. Because at this point, I don't mean to mischaracterize the brothers, but, but they, John kind of gives us this picture that if everything worked out and Jesus obeyed his brothers, that the brothers, after everything went well in their eyes, would say, Jesus is my brother. Did you know that? I'm the brother of Jesus. Well, half-brother, of course. Well, and, you know, and some people would even say he's, these are cousins that are talking about to excuse um, <laughs> the, the relationship here. But if everything went well, it would only be going well for the will and glory of his brothers, not for what he came for. Bruce Milne is a great Bible commentator that I've um, been following as, I, as I've gone through the book of John. He says this, hunger for spectacular signs is the enemy of real faith. 
since it leaves the fallen, self-centered heart untouched and unrebuked. I read that and I was like, that's going in the notes immediately. I don't even know what I'm preaching about yet. But it's so good. Hunger for spectacular signs is the enemy of real faith because it leaves the fallen, self-centered heart untouched and unrebuked. I don't mean to go on a side soapbox or anything, but when we as the church look through the New Testament and think, you know what we need is the signs. We need to start healing people and casting out demons and doing all these miraculous signs because then the world will believe. When we go that route, we're actually working against real faith. And the brothers prove that. Jesus proves that. Later on in the passage, when Jesus is talking about that healing of the man in chapter 5, he says, I, I do one work, in verse 21, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. You circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath day a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? He proves that what Jesus did in healing the man on the Sabbath, not only did it not break the Sabbath, it actually fulfilled the Sabbath. It actually did something more complete than what circumcision seeks to do. The idea of circumcision in the Old Testament law is to make somebody wholly a part of the people of God. And the sign that Jesus does in healing the paralyzed man, he makes, he, and he says this, he, I, I made his whole body well, and yet you're still angry with me. You, you still want to kill me. Because when we emphasize spectacular signs, which are the enemy of real faith, it leaves our fallen, self-centered heart untouched and unrebuked. And that's what we truly need. And that's what Jesus came to do. Verse 7, again, I testify about the works of the world that they are evil. Why does Jesus come to testify about the evil works of mankind? In John 3, he says, I, I wasn't sent to condemn the world, but to do what? To save it. And so revealing evil works is done with the intention of bringing salvation. I have found it increasingly difficult to discipline my girls. I know we were just talking, the, I think yesterday, about stop using your girls for sermon illustrations because one day they're going to tell you, but they're not in here right now. I've found it harder and harder to discipline my girls because they just, as they grow older and smarter, they start thinking for themselves and they realize, I don't get this. I don't get why you're telling me I'm in trouble, but you're doing this because you love me? Like, that doesn't make any sense. And of course, I sit there for hours on end trying to explain it to them and they're like, fine, dad, just leave me alone. I'll believe you, whatever, no. But, but they don't understand that you know, so, so with Nora, there was something that happened, and she didn't quite tell the truth. And when she realized she did that, she broke down in tears. They weren't tears of repentance. They were tears of, I got caught. I'm stuck. My evil works have been revealed. And it's hard to be in that place, isn't it? It's hard to be in that place when you don't see that the purpose of revealing those evil works was for reconciliation, was to bring salvation. And so over and over again, I, I, in the midst of my babbling, I was like, I got to get some scripture in here because at least I know that'll be true. And so just over and over, I was telling her, Nora, Jesus said, the truth will set you 
free. Your lie has tangled you up and got you stuck and caught. And that is where the people of God are. When Jesus comes to the festival of booths, he says, none of you keep the law. All of your works are evil. Whether it be just a simple lie or the like. Jesus says, because I reveal these things, the world hates me. He tells his brothers, hey, they don't hate you. It's going to fall on me. And James, one of his brothers, certainly would have been thinking about this instance when he wrote in his own epistle, in verse 4 of chapter 4, when James says, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? When you make yourself a friend of the world, you, by default, are an enemy of God. And that's the state of every person apart from Christ. All have fallen short of the glory of God. None have kept the law. All of their works are evil. Two more groups in here that we need to address. 7, 11 through 15, you see the mutterers and the teachers. So there's a lot of muttering going on. Some people are saying, hey, he's a good man. But then this accusation comes out. He's deceiving the people. Now again, our, our purpose here is to discover true teaching. But on the surface level, as Jesus says in verse 24, don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. On the surface level, people have decided Jesus is a deceiver. The verdict is out for some of these. Lord, liar, lunatic, he's a liar. And he deserves to be killed because he's deceiving the people. Because what he's doing is contrary to what God wants us to do. How distorted does your view of God have to be that you see what Jesus is doing and saying and you think he's doing the opposite of what God had to say and what God sent him to do? So the mutterers and the teachers say, hey, he's a deceiver. And then in verse uh, 15 the teachers say, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? They have a great excuse in their own minds because they've all studied. They can all say who's their, who their teacher was. I studied under Gamaliel. I studied under this guy or, or I'm this or I'm that. Jesus is just some carpenter. So not only morally can we say he's a deceiver, but we also have to say he doesn't even have any a ground to stand on because we don't know where he learned. That's how far away the human heart is from discovering the truth of Christ's teaching on their own. The boastful brothers, the mutterers and the teachers, lastly in verse 20, we have an appalled crowd. When Jesus says, none of you keeps the law, why do you seek to kill me? He's even saying, look, in your intentions right now of wanting to kill me, to put me to death and be done with me, you're breaking the law. He would say in another place, if you've ever hated your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. And so he says, you're seeking to kill me. How can you say you're fulfilling the law? He's talking to, a, to hundreds of people, potentially, who are all there to fulfill the law, to honor the festival of booths. And he's saying, you're not doing that. So their response, this appalled crowd, accuses him of having a demon. And what they're saying is, you're paranoid. You're crazy. You're a lunatic. Is he Lord? Is he a liar? Or is he a lunatic? You can't pick anything other than those categories. And under our own goal of prioritizing our will and our glory, we can only judge based on appearance and not based on the substance of what, teach, what teachings we see in chapter 7. We can be deceived by something we like even. We can be deceived as, as they are here as saying like, well, I don't like what he has to say, therefore I don't think it's right. 
But we can also be deceived into thinking everything's okay and, and want to come to church or come to a Bible study or, or, or have conversations at the coffee shop that make us feel like even though the world is really not in a great place, that maybe things are going to get better before they get worse. Maybe things in my life are going to get better before they get worse. I would love the appearance of that, but when we come to the substance of it, we see shallowness and emptiness. Just like the people who were happy with the bread and the fish, the loaves that kept coming and coming, and they had 12 baskets of leftovers. Yet when the living water of his teaching came, they bolted, they were gone. Many of his disciples no longer followed him, verse 66 says. No longer walked with him. They couldn't continue in the teaching. They disbelieved because they don't receive his teaching. And they won't discover the truth of his teaching because of their own self-will, the will of themselves, their desire for their own glory, for their own plans to come together, for all that they want to happen to happen. So I want to ask you, church, are you relinquishing your priority of your self-will, your self-glory? And if you're not, you can't expect to hear or discover the truth of Jesus' teaching. This can go straight over your head and mean nothing at all. It could just be a moment where you say, let's just get this over and let's move on. But if you'll relinquish your own will and your own purpose for your glory, Jesus says, you'll discover the truth of my teaching. It'll become like water to you. It won't be that water that drowns you, but it's the water that refreshes your soul and gives you life. And, and he says in your heart, it becomes a river of living water pouring out. And we come then to the cross and see that his teachings have left, led all the way up to it and that the cross is the perfect pinnacle of his teaching because there he frees us to discover the truth of his teaching. Because there we see what his disciples said, where do we have to go? You have the words of eternal life. When we see the cross for what it really was, we could say, how could there be any other way for me to be right with God? How could there be any other way to live? This man that I don't even know and who yet knows me so well, better than I know myself, has taken my place on the cross. At the very least, you need to consider that, right? If not, submit your will and your glory to God's. Jesus comes to the feast to fulfill it, but he's wanted dead because he has a peculiar authority. Jesus never comes in his teaching. I don't know if you ever thought about this. R.C. Sproul told me this this past week through his commentary. He said, Jesus never says, thus saith the Lord. He says things like, truly, truly, I say to you. Because he is the word of God. Because he is the son of God. Because, because of that relationship he has, that equality with the father, his teaching is perfect. And it doesn't lack anything. It covers all the bases of our life. And it's the cross that frees us to discover that teaching. That even in the moment of death and sorrow and seemingly the defeat of the Son of God, we find a perfect victory of truth. I wonder, do you bring this kind of teaching into your life? Do you let the teaching of the cross, the good news of Jesus, rule your life, rule your will, and rule what you seek for glory? Three truths in the revealed teaching of Jesus. We'll go through quickly here. In justice, his teaching deals with the evil works of the world. In verse 19 again, he says, none of you keep the law. He showed by the healing that he can fulfill the law. 
that, that every time he interacts with the expectation of God on man, he not only satisfies, but he does an even greater work than what God requires. Injustice, making things right at the cross. He deals with the evil works of the world. Secondly, in humility, his teaching fulfills the will of God to glorify the Father. In 638, he says again, I have not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He's very clear about his mission. His mission is the will of the Father. And his vision, if you want to think in business terms, you have a mission statement and a vision statement, right? The mission is what you're going to do. The vision is the goal of what you would like to get to. He makes this clear in 16 through 18. My mission is the will of the Father. The vision is the glory of the Father. Is that your mission and vision today? Lastly, in grace, his teaching makes his people completely well from sin. He doesn't bring up this matter of of healing this man on the Sabbath and the matter of circumcision just to get super legal and weird and make us scratch our heads. What's he talking about? But to point something out, that in his healing, all the healing, all the signs, all the wonders that he does, he does to point to a greater healing. That by grace, a good thing we don't deserve, his teaching makes his people completely well. How are you going to battle sin in your heart, Christian? You're only going to be able to do that by the word of God. The cross is the ultimate proof of the truth of Jesus' teaching. There he seeks the Father's will and brings him glory. Because of that, the teaching of the gospel becomes living water to us. That's why, Lord willing, I'll never, (laughs) in this position here, not tell you about Jesus. Because the gospel is the key to understanding all of this. And it becomes living water to our thirsty souls. So what do we do in light of all of this? Later on, Jesus is going to say, or rather John says that when Jesus talks about living water, he's picturing the spirit and the life of people, that the Holy Spirit of God, equal with the Father, equal with the Son, comes to bring that life to his people and to help us walk in it. In John 14, 26, Jesus says, the helper whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That'd be really great if it was just a matter of downloading Bible information and then having a notification in our minds like we do on our phones that says, hey, don't forget this Bible verse. It doesn't exactly work that way. You've got to spend time. You've got to come to the word of God. You you have to come to it because Jesus says the spirit comes to teach you and to bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you, Jesus says. So you have to come to the word first. You have to drink from that living water in order to walk the life that God calls you in the teachings of Christ. So three things I want you to walk away with from this passage. First, discern and denounce false teaching. We, we see kind of the seed of that in this whole idea of like, hey, just, just do the signs and wonders. That'll bring people in because that's what we're really about. Don Carson, another great theologian, says, the seeker needs no self-achievement in learning. It's not as though uh, the person who is looking for Christ has to reach some plateau of knowledge, but he must be fundamentally committed to doing God's will. And when you're committed to doing God's will, you have to discern and denounce false teaching, whatever it looks like. By Jesus' own definition, the truth of God is self-authenticating. When we put God's word to the test, when we test it with reality, we see it proving itself over and over and over again. And Jesus gives us the test that we can use. Again, it's the matter of the will of God versus my will and the glory of God versus the glory of man. That's how we know whether a teaching is true or not. 
Note, as I'm speaking and giving a sermon, I didn't say whether a sermon is good or not, just whether it's true, okay? Or whether you liked it, okay. Obviously, I'm, I'm explaining myself away here and going into sermon apologetics. Secondly, for application, prioritize Christ's mission and vision statements. The will of God is his mission. The vision is the glory of God. Repent of prioritizing your own self-will. Stop getting so mad when your plans don't work out. Three fingers pointed back at me on this one, of course. But don't we all? This week didn't happen the way I wanted it to. How many times you got to learn that that's going to be life? <laughs> you know, That's how it's going to be. But if we prioritize Christ's mission of, his, of seeking the will of his Father and the glory of his Father, then we walk in that redemption that we have. Because he wants us to imitate him. Not, not just see what he is and say, that was really great for you, Jesus, but you don't know what my life is like. Prioritize Christ's mission and vision statements in your life. Last thing, and this is the last time I'm going to say last thing, testify to the truth of Christ's teachings. Disciples of Jesus, later on in the book of Acts, not so much longer after this in history, would be met with the same criticism about the source of their teaching. In Acts 4.13, such an awesome passage. Luke says, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, that is the religious leaders, they perceived that they were uneducated. They said the same thing. Where is this guy getting this teaching? They saw that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. How are you going to be able to testify to the truth of Christ if you are in Christ? Your relationship with Christ. Learning how to share the gospel and all that kind of stuff. There's great books about it. I, I mean, I read a great one last, last year. There's so many great resources for that. But at the fundamental core of testifying to the goodness of Christ's teaching is the matter of your relationship with him. So will you examine your own relationship, your own walk with Christ today to see if you're taking his teachings for what they truly are, living water to quench your thirsty soul. And whether you will put aside the accusation of lunatic and liar and make him Lord every day. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, thank you this morning for your goodness, for the goodness of your word, for the goodness of your mission that Christ came to fulfill and has fulfilled perfectly. Never once did Jesus go against your will, even to do his own will. And we are called to do likewise. Help us in our hearts to acknowledge the ways we are prioritizing our own will, our own plans. Humble us, Father, so that we might conform to your will and to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.